Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and importantly appreciation. The show is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am. And we just heard from Sally out of the hand. Make sure you check that out. If you missed that show, I was lucky enough to catch um, a bunch of it. But yeah, if you missed that show, remember you can check out all uh, of Sally's episodes on Out of the Pan raising awareness um, of issues around gender and sexuality, uh, pansexual issues. Um, yeah, basically that show airs 12 to 1 every Sunday and you can listen to that episode and all episodes via the 3CR website, which is 3cr.org.au, as well as checking out all the other shows on 3CR while you're there. So, yeah, I'm your host today, Nick Pendergrast, and, yeah, I'm in the studio by myself, which is unusual, but most of the episodes actually going to be a discussion I had with Zoe Sutton, who is a PhD candidate, and her research looks into the issue of pets or companion animals, these animals we share our home with. And, yeah, this uh, discussion came out of a sociology conference that both me and Zoe spoke at recently. This is a conference by the Australian Sociological Association, or TASA, which went from the 19th to the 22nd of November at Deakin University out in Burwood and the theme was precarity rights and resistance and me and Zoe spoke in the sociology and animal stream so basically this talk was a general sociology talk there was lots of yeah lots of important issues raised there was issues around uh, critical disability studies gender and sexuality uh, race uh, multiculturalism a wide range of different issues and me and Zoe both spoke in the sociology and animal stream so th- uh, six talks are on the topic of social Geology and animals and yeah this is a fairly new move as we discuss later on um yeah in the discussion i'll have i'll bring you with zoe in a moment um yeah later on in the in the show we talk a bit about how sociology fits into or how animals fit into sociology and how often this link has has been left out and is very much a new new area this idea of um yeah including both human animals but also other animals within uh sociology so yeah the 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 uh theme of tarza or the sort of slogan of tarza is understanding our world making a difference and that's why we're bringing you this discussion which is you know based on Zoe's um, academic research because yeah I guess academic research can just be just talking about these interesting theories because us as academics enjoy this but it can also be about making change and and helping activists and learning from activists and and be about making change and so it's great social um, Tarza sorry has this theme and sociology generally certainly can have this, this theme actually being relevant to a general audience and an activist audience not just within academia uh, so in terms of what sociology is for anyone who's uh, unsure we're definitely not going to go into too much in you know sociological theory or anything like that but according to I look this up because I am a sociologist so I teach about this stuff and I research and I write about sociology so I'm very much within this world and it can be hard to think about actually defining these terms when you're so sort of deep in it but according to my quick google search so uh, sociology is a study of the development structure and functioning of human society uh, but again in terms of looking at sociology and animals the idea we're sort of extending that idea going when we do look at it, societies you know with other animals are part of society and other animals have their own societies and so it definitely can be extended to sociology and also a more general definition is just a study of social problems which again obviously could include other animals as well as humans I guess more generally sociology is about yeah the study of society and yeah what one thing which maybe differentiates it from other similar areas is the, the focus on power and the idea how individuals are affected by these broader social forces whether that's government policy uh, media representations all these kind of things and yeah as we touch on a lot of this these sort of same things that sociologists focus on definitely affect animals like individual animals lives are affected by broader economic processes media representations government policy just as we are as individual humans so yeah well what the discussion is mainly going to be about is is Zoe's research on uh, companion animals 
and also, yeah, how that relates to animal activism, how it fits in within animal liberation, these kind of uh, broader questions. So, yeah, I think we'll get straight into the discussion that I had. Uh, so this is Zoe Sutton, um, PhD candidate. So I'm joined by Zoe Sutton, and we're actually recording this not in 3CR studios, but our, our home studios and be with the dogs, which is kind of relevant considering all of uh, Zoe's research. So I thought we could maybe start off talking a little bit about uh, the dogs you have at your house as a good way to start uh, into this issue. Okay. So I share my house with three dogs. I've got um, one of each size. We've got a big dog who is a golden retriever crossed with a poodle, a medium-sized dog who's a spring, a spaniel crossed with a poodle, and they both came from puppy farms, which is um, an interesting story. And then we have a little Jack Russell who came from an animal shelter. Mm-hmm. Mm. And from, you know, from having those dogs in your home, was that what sort of pushed you towards this kind of research or was it other reasons? Like what led you into researching this topic? It was a few different things. I think I started as a kind of a run-of-the-mill vegetarian who liked dogs. So I worked in a lot of animal industries. I worked at a dog groomer and an animal shelter and um, as a pet sitter. And I think what really struck me was that working in the groomer, I probably saw more cruelty than at the animal shelter. Mm. <clears throat> and so I was really struck by this kind of everyday cruelty we have in our relationships with pets that we don't see because people just take them to the groomer and you don't see the mats. And a lot of animals are matter to the point that they've got maggots in their skin and things. And wow. so I started really thinking about this sort of everyday neglect that we have that seems completely fine mm -hmm. and then um i got my second dog lorelei who came from a puppy farm like malini her sister and when we got her malini we got her as a puppy so she was very small and very cute and she you know we didn't really think anything was wrong we met her parents and when we got lorelei she was brought down in a rusty truck and she was about six months old we've gotten an older puppy and she was matted to the skin and she had a big gash in her leg and she'd been starved she was really quite skeletal and that was when I realized that even though we'd done all of the things, you know, on the RSPCA checklist, we'd met the parents, we'd investigated where we were getting them from, we'd actually bought a puppy from this really awful puppy farm. And I started thinking about the really awful conditions she lived in. And from there, I thought, well, what are good conditions? Probably none because we're breeding animals and selling their offspring because we want to have pets. Mm. And that's really where I started. Yeah. And that, that is uh, something which... I think we, yeah, is maybe a, not even hidden as quite actually blatant, but maybe something doesn't come to mind in terms of the, the damage of having pets. I remember uh, someone had their dog had puppies and they're like, oh, it's so funny. Like they're protective over their puppies when people take them away. And mm -hmm. that's definitely one of the you know, dark sides of this sort of industry is that, yeah, we constantly, yeah, it's just hardly seen as an issue, but we constantly break up families. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, there was an episode of Freedom of Species a while ago um, on the issue of language around different animals. And there's certain, you know, terms that we use. And um, Joan Denea does a lot of work in this area about terms that are generally used and trying to use terms which I'd be more accurately reflect that. So maybe rather than meat, we might use animal flesh, these kind of things, trying mm -hmm. to rather than sort of washing over the, the harm and the suffering, actually using something that's more accurate. And one thing that was interesting um, I found in her checklist, which is for animal activists, is one page and it's quite useful. It's like rather than using this term, use this term. And it was like rather than using pet, we should use the term pet. And she was like, it's actually quite accurate. Generally, we use the word companion animals. Um, but yeah, I think you tended to agree with her on that use of language. Is that right? Yeah, I definitely do. I think early in my PhD, I was really wrestling with that. And I know we have a lot of literature that tells us we should be using companion animal. It's more respectful for the animals. And I can see where people are coming from. But I also think we have very anthropocentric research around companion animals. And part of that is because we convince ourselves these relationships aren't fundamentally oppressive. So I've kind of gone back to pet. I use them interchangeably, but I do kind of freely use pet because I think it is it is a relationship of domination. And if we're going to study these relationships, then we need to acknowledge that and center that. Yeah, definitely. And mm. I think I was saying the other day, I definitely... I try and as much as possible treat them like they are companion animals, but mm -hmm. also acknowledge, you know, I guess, the reality, like the legal reality and, and I guess just general the reality of them as pets, as, you know, someone I own, which is, yeah, definitely a problem of owning owning someone else. And, um, yeah, also I wanted to touch on in terms of, yeah, you're very much into critical animal studies and radical change for animals. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people in this field, as you've already mentioned, are not. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about how this fits into critical animal studies and how you know th this issue of pets or companion animals is often neglected in this field? Yeah, absolutely. I think it partially, it comes back to that same thing that even 
In a lot of vegan groups in Adelaide, I'm not sure what it's like here, but we still see that critical vegans don't problematize pets like they do all of our other relationships. And I think that's reflected in critical animal studies a lot. We tend to look at meat animals and animals used for testing and animals that are raised on farms. And we should because mm. their lives are awful. They're very oppressed. But at the same time, I think it's a mistake to think that pets aren't also oppressed and that they're not oppressed by that same mechanism that oppresses all non-human animals. So part of my research has been very much trying to straddle that divide between how do we look at these relationships that seem quite nice and I've done interviews with people and the relationships I look at are good relationships I don't look at oppressive pet relationships mm. and finding that kind of you know the oppressive underpinning of all of them that manifests in everyday life so I think it's really important that critical animal studies brings pets in and I think they're really important to the animal liberation movement I know we look at these kind of big grand scale movements and things like that but I'm really interested in how little resistances and thinking differently about companion animals and taking them seriously as an oppressive relationship might end up with broader better narratives of animal liberation to help us with the movement mm, and we've covered horse racing on the show recently and i know it came up of you know they often say oh these are athletes and any athlete can get you know can get injured and these mm -hmm. kind of things and of course uh you know i raise many other raised issue of consent sort of coming from a feminist perspective mm -hmm. they can't consent to it unlike say football players like humans for example um and i, I guess i was thinking about that the same with um yeah pets or companion animals the fact that I, I guess in a way there are some benefits to domestication in terms of maybe longer lives, veterinary care, mm -hmm. but they have to sort of trade that off against their freedom. So it's like, do they want freedom or would they rather live a few years longer and, and have veterinary care when they get sick? And it's like, they can't really consent to that trade-off, I guess. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And pets are a human-created category. Like I think often we're talking about you know, we say, well, there's going to be animals who will look after them. And of course, I'm not advocating for us to turn all of the dogs loose. And a lot of my participants said this, we don't agree with pets, but I can't just let my dog free on the highway and say, have a nice life because he won't. Yeah. But, um, but I think the point is that when we have these conversations, we never look at breeding and we very much have this kind of veil of affection where we look at the things that happen in your relationship once you get your pet and you don't think about the things that happen outside. Mm. So we never have that conversation of, well, part of animal liberation is that we stop breeding and part of getting people to think critically about pets is to say well what if they were never bred at all maybe we should be seriously thinking about that when we talk about animal population what if we stopped breeding them yeah and i think once we do breed them for our own purposes like going back to the example i gave before like they're ours to do what we want break them up break families mm -hmm. up sell them for profit those, those kind of things um and yeah also in terms of veganism and pets uh, one thing that often comes up there's the famous like uh, advertising campaigns why I love one but eat the other those kind of things it's mm -hmm. like okay we've got a good relationship versus a bad relationship but one thing I found interesting from your talk at the Taza conference was um, about actually vegans actually using their veganism to go the other way and actually challenge our you know use of non-human animals for companionship. Absolutely. And this is something that I was quite surprised by because I've read a lot of literature where we say people become vegan because you have a pet and then you do, you look at cows and sheep and chickens and think, well, what's the difference between eating them and eating my pet? And um, I was really interested that it was quite, it wasn't just one person, it was all of the vegans in my study said they'd never thought critically about pet keeping until they'd engaged in vegan literature. And they were vegetarian before, so it doesn't come out in like the vegetarian discourses. It was only the vegans that connected to, to that broader structural kind of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I guess also an, another thing uh, in terms of the relationship with with uh, pets or companion animals. Um, but yeah, I guess there's there's often that human centric focus of mm -hmm. um, I guess even there can be some comparisons to other animal industries like this is a great reciprocal relationship. But mm -hmm. I guess we're the sort of dominant or privileged ones. Uh, do you want to speak to that a little bit in terms of pets? Yeah, absolutely. Um I think there's definitely that. And we have that in the literature as well, that we do tend to paint these as reciprocal. And when we do research, I mean, we're looking at real relationships, right? So when you go and look, I'm looking at your dogs now and they look mm -hmm. very happy. And it's mm -hmm. hard to think of how you could connect looking at this relationship with something that is quite ugly and oppressive. <clears throat> but, um, but yeah, I think the reciprocal relationship thing is it comes back to that framing again. It comes back to not looking at those broader power structures and just focusing on what happens in your house because then you don't, think about how they could have had a different life. And I do think, like there's something to these pets. I'm not saying that animals don't love us and that they're just objects, nothing like that. I think we can have a positive relationship with them, but that depends on us oppressing them, confining them, putting them in a situation of living where they can't go and choose another life. So, um, so they might have a positive relationship, but that doesn't mean that pet keeping in general is a positive thing. 
Yeah, and you mentioned that, um, you know, they're oppressed and we often focus on elements of some agency they may have. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you want to talk, and you've touched on this a bit, but you would like to talk any more about how they're oppressed even in good relationships when they're treated well, why it's still a fundamental problem? Oh, absolutely. This was um, one of my favorite things about my research. I was trying to do species-inclusive research. So I was thinking about how our, how a depiction of these relationships changes when we actually look at the pets. So I did observation in people's houses. And what I found was that in just watching the way that animals navigate their homes and the way that humans control animals in the home, we have all of these little micro-oppressions that happen all of the time. So even things like, you know, environment control, there's rooms that pets can't go in and there's baby gates up so they can't go everywhere. I have this in my home. Like it's just, it's part of the relationship. I think that we give them as much freedom as we can, but we do constrain them on a daily basis. Their food's often controlled. They can't get their own food. They Mm -hmm. can't fill up their own water. And um, their relationships are very mediated. And when I started looking at what happens in different houses, I saw that some people do this more so than others and some people do this differently. And so um, so some people really try to decenter the human and think about what it would be like and make sure their pets have constant access to the things that they need so that they can have as much control over their environment mm-hmm. as possible or put them in situations where they can have relationships with other animals. So I went to a house that had a lot of birds. The birds were my favorite. And, um, and she had made a really big effort to have free-flying birds. And she'd also organized the birds in ways that meant that if they had to be in the cages, they were put in communication groups so the birds could facilitate relationships between themselves which I found really interesting because a lot of houses I went to that had more than one pet, the humans focused on their relationship with the pet, but they didn't think about what their pet's relationships might be like, or they didn't try to facilitate relationships with their pets and other animals or anything like that. And all of that really highlights that we control almost everything about their daily lives. You know, they can't take themselves for a walk. They can't let themselves go whenever they feel like it. They can't do whatever they want. And even if you do try to give them freedom, when other people come in, they bring those outside prejudices with them. So there's just... There's oppression in, in everything in our daily lives. You can't get away from it. Mm, yeah, and I guess they're dependent on us by design. They're not dependent on us because they've got injured or something's mm-hmm. happened. Like they're inherently totally dependent on us. And obviously, yeah, sometimes that can be done better than others in terms of giving them water, those kind of things. But I know, um, you know, Gary Francione is quite outspoken on this issue of like being against pets and being against all domestication and mm-hmm. all use of animals and saying that, you know, basically, yeah, there are these fundamental problems with you're raising but even just like have we done it well even if it could be done well no we haven't there's still so many dogs being killed in shelters there's still so many dogs who are treated poorly even within the limits of they're always going to be sort of limited in terms of freedom i guess that kind of thing yeah absolutely and i guess thinking from an activist point of view i know uh, animal industries often sort of raise the pet issue as almost like a like a, a red herring or kind of a like you know, it's like, oh, but if we object to this, then wouldn't we object to pets? So, yeah, how do you feel that in terms of people go, oh, but if you object to horse racing, then you could say the same about pets or whatever. Like, how, how does that fit within those arguments? In fact, these often used as a sort of a gotcha moment to animal advocates. I mean, it's tricky because I think with a lot of vegan movement and a lot of vegan discourses, I'm always tempted to just say yes. That is, if you if you object to horse racing, yes, you should object to pets. That's um, the logical conclusion. But I think a lot about how the arguments that I make, like I I think they're quite coherent. I agree with them. But I think about how they're interpret, interpreted in public discourse and then what that means for the animal movement. Because I do, I wonder how strategic we need to be. And when we start challenging pets, which is seen as our one positive relationship, mm. It makes it tricky to pursue like the entire vegan movement. I can see why we don't include pets in a lot of our animal liberation because it's much easier to highlight the experiences of a battery hen and say this is not okay than to put up, you know, the puppy that everyone loves that you take to the groomer that seems like a really nice relationship and say this isn't okay either. So I think it's a very tricky thing to manage. And I do I do wonder if our inclusion of pets in the animal liberation movement, which is what I'm arguing for, we definitely need to have it. But I wonder if it's a conversation that at the moment needs to happen in activist circles, in like academic work, so that it's something we know we're working towards, but we haven't put it at the forefront in our public messages quite yet because I don't think they're ready for it. Yeah, and I think it very much depends on the framing of messages. I'd argue even in maybe more radical aspects of the animal movement, particularly vegan spaces, it's still often along the lines of uh, cruelty. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, cruelty would be the most common one because that's almost like a welfare argument, I guess, sort of using welfare to argue for veganism uh, or at the very least maybe slaughter, but we don't generally talk about fundamentally animal use, Mm -hmm. uh, domestication, uh, these more fundamental things. And if we did, probably... 
pets would be a more like logical part of that. Mm-hmm. But because the framing is generally more around um, cruelty, it doesn't necessarily always. I mean, you could say it's cruel to own someone, I guess, but it's maybe yes. not as clear as you know industries that slaughter animals, which is fairly mm-hmm. fairly straightforward. Um, but yeah, I guess also thinking along the lines of. Um, yeah, of activism and also practical. I think I think this is a yeah a really interesting philosophical discussion that can also yeah definitely can apply to activism as well. But also, I guess on the practical level, as as you mentioned, like you share your home with dogs, and um, like we can't like these animals are already domesticated. As much as we oppose that, we still we we have to do something with these animals. So yeah, I guess your focus is on opposing the breeding of animals and and adoption. I'm guessing. Um, I think that's a primary focus. And I also, I always feel like I'm making things that sound like welfareist arguments, but I would frame them within like an animal rights discourse. And someone once said to me, is the only difference that you're making similar arguments, but you're framing it as, but we need to get rid of pets. And I said, well, kind of, but I don't think that's a problem because I think that framing is really important. And I think part of my focus is looking at how we can decenter human in pet relationships. So Mm -hmm. saying, all right, so we love our pets. You love your pet. You want to have a good relationship with your pet let's look at what you're actually doing and maybe how that isn't having a good relationship with your pet and how you could do it better. And I do think if we start decentering the human in the relationship, by which I mean actually looking at what your house looks like and how you could enable your pet to have more freedom, how you could enable them to have more choices than you currently have, I think that's getting us to a point where we have less problematic relationships, but it is on the way to getting rid of these relationships. Yep. So I think that's kind of my focus for the minute is highlighting how our pet-friendly cities and our pet-friendly homes are not actually really pet-friendly at all and we need to do better. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. We need to challenge the relationship while also doing as best as we possibly can within mm-hmm. the very big limits, which which you've kind of already established. And I think a point from your talk was something along the lines how letting a dog on the couch can be revolutionary or at least a form of resistance. I thought that was really interesting. Do you want to talk to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of the people I interviewed, they weren't vegan and they didn't think about animal rights or anything, but they were doing these very specific things that meant that they were decentering the human. So they were privileging the animal in their house as if they were a human. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very problematic language but when we talk about pets we really are talking about elevating singular animals to a kind of equal footing to the humans in the house as much as we can mm-hmm. and um so there was a lot of kind of little small things they did so some people yes had their animals they were allowed to go wherever they liked in the house and when someone came in and said something about the dog being on the couch they said well it's her house it's not your house so if you don't like it you can leave mm-hmm. and this was quite significant because it challenges that human privileging That's quite surprising for a lot of people. Everything in this world is designed to say that you're the human. What you want is very important and the animals should just kind of fall in line with whatever you want. So these little these little kind of valuings were were quite important. Also, people who had non-traditional animals, because I looked at any animal that a human decided was a pet, I included in my study. So we had people who had chickens or they had small birds that weren't necessarily valued in broader society. So even the act of advocating for them at the vet and fighting that they should have veterinary care or that they are important or they should have enrichment all of these things are kind of revolutionary in the sense that whoever you're advocating to all of a sudden has to think oh maybe these animals have some sort of value maybe they have some sort of inherent value Mm. and you can't just you know that one's a bit sick we'll just let it die and buy a new one Mm -hmm. which is often what you hear Mm -hmm. yeah you made the point that yeah change change regarding companion animals is always limited but still uh definitely worth trying and another issue came up is the yeah along those lines was the idea of um humane training and viewing the issue with a human rather than the animal Mm. you want to talk to that a little yes absolutely um I mean, training in general is obviously just a complete act of human power over animals. And I thought it was really interesting that some people viewed training as teaching animals to behave, to behave as a phrase to say there is this code of behavior that we humans have decided and animals have to fall in line. And often that's very standardized. It's, you know, the sit, drop, stay training. Um, It might be balance training. So, you know, including punishment, not just positive reinforcement. And um, so there was this view of training as something that you had to civilize animals to be in society, that they didn't know how to behave and us humans had to graciously teach them what to do and keep them under constant control. But there was another thing that came up that I thought was interesting. And one of my participants said, I took, I took him to positive reinforcement training because he thought he was completely safe in my home, which meant that he was completely safe in the world. And he's not because as soon as you go out the front door, you've got cars, you've got humans. It is a very human centric world where animals don't have any value. 
and he needs to know how to behave accordingly in that setting and another one talked about training as a kind of communal language so if her dog had escaped this gave something that if a human found them these are kind of human recognized language meant she could communicate with their dog and have the best possible chance of being returned safely so i think in that sense positive reinforcement training was the better of not great options but it also was really significant for the humans that went to it because the first week of positive reinforcement training often you go without your dog so you get there and they say look we bring you without your dog because we're not here to train your dog. We're here to train you. You as the human are responsible. If something's going on with your dog, it's a result of what you are doing as a human. You're responsible. And for them, this is this is one of those rupture moments, which is what I call any moment when someone who's had previously kind of normative understandings of their relationships with pets has this moment when they go, oh, hang on, I've never thought about this before. And so for them, that changed the whole way they thought about their relationship. All of a sudden, it was about human responsibility. What am I doing? How am I shaping this relationship? And how could I shape it better for my pet? Mm. And yeah, I, I one humane trainer I've you know, personally used, she's in the US, but I've had a consult over Skype for a, a dog I had in the past. And that's Alana Stevenson. And she's got a book, Training Your Dog the Humane Way. And she made the point, um, which I thought was quite good and definitely goes against the dominant way of training dogs. And as you say, training itself is sort of inherently problematic mm -hmm. and it's sort of a, a symptom of this problematic relationship. But at the same time, we do have dogs who might harm other dogs, for example, and then we do need to do training, I guess, um, in as best possible way as kind of you touched on before. But she mentioned avoid trainers whose philosophies involve dominance mm -hmm. or who talk about teaching dogs that you are the alpha or boss over them. Um, yeah, as well as trainers who label dogs stubborn or otherwise indicate that dog training is based on reprimands and punishment. And so I, I thought that is, again, there are definitely limits to that, but I think that is definitely a positive step in terms of not sort of viewing yourself as above the dog. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even though in a way we kind of inherently are in the relationship, I guess, or replace ourselves by that way by owning pets in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's yeah. about that common language as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think in positive reinforcement training, because they focus on developing a communal language with your dog, it straight away tells you that your dog is capable of communicating. And if you're not communicating with your dog, it's because you haven't learned to speak your communal language. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting because that goes, you know, very well beyond choker chain training or prong collars or even just negative reinforcement, whether you think the only way you can train your animal is through fear. Mm -hmm. So we're going to discuss some of the other talks from this conference a bit later on in the show, but is there anything you'd like to say about your research or the pets or companion animal topics before we move on? Oh, I think the only thing I would like to tell people is that we need to take pets seriously and we need to be thinking critically about our relationships with them. So if you have a pet, if you're working in pets, if you're doing research, start thinking about thinking critically about them. And if you don't think critically about them, start unpacking why that is. Is it something about your own standpoint that's filtering into research that maybe is keeping some things hidden that shouldn't be? We'll be back with more talking about the Taza Sociology and Animals uh, session at the conference later on in the show. And you're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR. Each year, 3CR celebrates International Day of People with Disability. I want choices and rights. Join us on Monday, December 3rd from 7am to 7pm for a day of dedicated programming. Hear our voices on the issues that matter to us. The right to access, education, empowerment, pride, to creativity and expression, to freedom from discrimination and violence. Tune in on December 3 from 7am to 7pm on 3CR. And join the fight for the choices and rights of disabled people. <laughs> I was like, that was good enough, yeah? Excellent, done. Black dog I see daily, nightly, monthly, yearly, sweetly, dearly. She says, when you pet me, I feel neatly. Rub my paws, please, and scratch my belly. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR and yeah, we are talking about companion animals, pets today, as well as talking about the sociology and animal session from a recent sociology conference by the Australian Sociological Association or TAZA. And the track I just played then was Black Dog by AJJ. It was a live version of that track. And particularly for those who are listening back to this after the fact where we cut out the music, I did want to mention that that is actually about a black dog. It's just like hearing that term actually makes 
makes me think of like you know, racial slurs, that kind of thing. And there, there is actually a lot of uh, academic research looking at the way in which we use uh, language about animals to devalue uh, groups of humans, like to project racism onto. And the way in which we do, when we do this, we both devalue the the group who is who's having the slur against them, obviously, but we also devalue non-human animals in that sort of accepted as a slur, as a negative thing as well. So it sort of devalues uh, but both of the groups when we use those kind of slurs. But again, that's nothing to do with what that song was about. So yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, pets or companion animals in the middle here before we get on to the second part of the discussion I had with Zoe Sutton, who is a PhD student in sociology and her research is all about pets and our relationship with pets. And yeah, I did want to mention that, um, yeah, well... First of all, maybe I'll mention the website petrescue.com.au and that can kind of seem almost a bit contradictory the, the fact we've uh, spoken about some of the problems of owning pets and encouraging people to adopt someone. But yeah, there are definitely, as we've touched on throughout this this show, definitely problems with the idea of pet ownership. But as Zoe touched on, these animals are already here and it's sort of the best case scenario we can do them to do for them in terms of um, yeah alternatives being, being killed in shelters or living out their lives in cages in, in shelters. So on petrescue.com.au, there are lots of dogs, cats, as well as other species that can be adopted. Um, Give them a home. And yeah, I I guess also thinking about this idea of adopting and one of the issues we raised with pet ownership was this idea of the breaking up of families. And the two dogs who you may have heard in the background of that recording are chewing their toys, those kind of things. And I guess that's our way of uh, decentering ourselves and letting the dogs doing their things, even if that is sort of interfering with our quality a little bit, um, was actually adopting these dogs so the two dogs I recently adopted just under a year ago um, Penny Moo Moo my uh, two staffies I have in my apartment um, yeah that they're mother and daughter and so it was really nice to be able to you know so they were basically due to be killed later on that day. So you get them out of that situation, um, but also keep that family together. Obviously, there were other family members who had you know, been sold off and those kind of things, and that speaks to some of the problems we've identified. But also, if you can adopt. Uh, animals who are maybe family members we can try and keep these families together as much as possible or generally animals who are bonded pair anyone who t- can take uh two two animals into their homes and obviously only if you can only take one that that's great as well if you can yeah adopt anyone out of that situation that is a really great thing and i, I did want to mention that um yeah the victorian election and yeah sally on out of the pan did a lot of great analysis of that so make sure you check out sally's episode if you missed it you can find it at 3cr.org.au and check out the shows and yeah Sally had a really in-depth in-depth analysis of that I did want to say just briefly it is really great sort of echoing Sally thought it is really great that the Liberal Party ran this really misleading scare campaign about crime being out of control and focusing on certain types of crime that had maybe risen even though crime overall has actually dropped and very very misleading campaign trying to divide trying to um, throw certain groups under the bus like um people of African origin with this idea of, yeah, this invention of the Liberal Party of African gangs, this kind of thing, this this division and hatred and fear that the Liberal Party tried to stir up. I'm very uh, grateful that Victorians uh, opposed that, didn't buy that. So that is really great. But what I want to touch on here on freedom of species, where bringing animal advocacy on the air, airwaves, is actually focus on just a brief point on how animals feature just in a very small way in this election. So actually on the morning of the election, yesterday morning, I actually saw a post from the Labor candidate in our area talking about the reforms for um, basically not allowing to discriminate against pets in rental properties. And so this is kind of very, very relevant to all the kind of things we're discussing today in that, um, yeah, this is definitely can be sort of positive for animals, I guess, at least in terms of if people are adopting them, giving them a place to live and having greater allowances for animals, but also the limitations of that within our current framework in that generally this legislation, which is a positive thing, I think, for people renting to be able to share their home with animals and not allow people, you know, landlords and um, strata complexes, these kind of things to discriminate against um yeah, people living with, with other species, but it's very much within this notion of uh, pet owners as a social group of humans. So it's very much the idea of it's a, we can't discriminate against pet owners rather than actually we're doing this to help animals. So it indirectly may help animals to some degree, but it also shows that very human-centric way we, we talk about the issue of pets and the way we talk about animal issues in general as well. So I thought that was an interesting example from the Victorian election. Uh, and yeah, there may be more reflections on that election in future episodes. 
episodes, but I'll leave that for now. I just wanted to make uh, one final point uh, on the on this issue of pets. And that is that uh, I remember reading in my own uh, PhD research going back a number of years, they were talking about different uh, philosophical arguments about how we should relate to other animals, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And they sort of spoke about the two extremes of from one end basically saying we can do anything we like to animals as long as it benefits us as humans versus uh, the other extreme end, which kind of points towards basically where me and Zoe more sit, is where they, they argued this position, this maybe more abolitionist or animal liberation position, Position is where any relationships or interactions with other animals is viewed with is viewed as suspect is viewed as wrong and I think that's a real mischaracterization of this position of being against domestication and against use of animals I don't think that actually means that we shouldn't relate or interact with animals at all and I want to give an example of that from my own experience so a few years back when I was living in Perth, I went to uh, Penguin, Penguin Island in Perth and Seal Island is nearby. And I be, believe actually sea lions rather than seals there. But either way, um, a friend that me and my partner went with, we were out on kayaks and we kayaked over to Seal Island. And yeah, basically what we did is this was all based on our friend. Her dad used to run this um, tour, which used to go to Seal Island. And so she knew all the right things to do to actually respectfully... Um, yeah, interact with these animals if if they wanted to. So what we did is we went you know close to the seal uh, the seal island and the sea lions were all there on the beach and basically we didn't get our um we didn't get our heads well it was only our heads above water we didn't get out of the water anymore because that's viewed as threatening. So we were just you know th- away off the shore with just our heads popping out the water, just giving them the opportunity if they want to interact with us so they definitely don't have to. And most of them did. St- stay on the beach and didn't want to interact with us but actually some of the younger ones the sort of adolescent sea lions actually came over and started swimming with us and actually if you flip they'll sort of imitate you they're very playful they're quite young and as you flip they'll flip those kind of things so that was an example of an interaction with an animal without actually owning them as your property or using them for your own use so yeah again I think that's a real mischaracterization that position I think we can interact with with animals without owning them without domestication uh, for our own needs and one final point I want to make as well is that regardless of what people think of the relationship with with companion animals whether it's the greatest thing in the world or whether it's actually a problematic relationship as we've argued on this episode I think we can all agree on not breeding anymore so there's currently so many animals in shelters so even if adopt even if you know there's nothing wrong with a pet um, yeah issue of keeping pets then we should be adopting these we shouldn't be killing animals in shelters or you know make letting them lives or forcing them to live out their lives in cages in, in shelters so yeah hypothetically when, when we've got new animals and shelters then we could have that discussion where some people would argue well let's 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 breed some more and people like me and Zoe would be saying no we shouldn't but either way at this point I think it's a very very clear ethical argument that we definitely should not be breeding any more um, companion animals for um, for human use whether that's done by so-called responsible breeders breeding them ourselves or any other way there's uh, no excuse when there's still animals who need to be adopted in shelters but I'm going to bring you on to the second part of the discussion with Zoe And yeah, on this part, we talk a little bit about sociology and animals, and we also talk about some of the other talks uh, from the sociology and animals stream from this Taza sociology conference. Me and Zoe were both speaking in the sociology and animals stream at the Taza conference, and do you want to talk a little bit about how, yeah, sociology can relate to animals and how often animals have been kept out of sociological discussions? Yes, absolutely. I mean, of course, sociology can look at animals and that's the whole basis of our group. But I think um, it's not necessarily that it doesn't fit in sociology where we where we exclude animals, but it's all part of that human privileging. So obviously, sociologists are human and they tend to look at human issues. And I think animal issues are often devalued. We don't see animals as important. And um, we have a few kind of scattered a few scattered articles looking at animals in our in our historical context, but very often they'll look a little bit at pets just to say pets are important to us and not very much at all. And it was really around 1979 when Clifton Bryant kind of called for a sociological focus on animals that we started seeing more of these papers pop up. Of course, there were feminists working in this area before, but often that's the one we go back to in sociology. And um, 
I think so. I think animals fit very well into sociology. We we often focus on the mechanisms of power that are used to invisibilize oppressed groups and are used to, you know, keep people in marginalized positions that maybe don't seem problematic or they might seem like individual problems, which is the whole point of sociology. The individual problems are actually connected to broader power structures. And I think the inclusion of animals really just comes from the point that if you think about what would happen if we valued animals like we value humans and then look at the world, you can see so many areas where we have these power structures that are designed to keep animals very oppressed and they're very overt. But um, yeah, so I think sociology is very well placed to consider these things with that kind of focus on power and how it affects the individual. Yeah, and I think these issues aren't necessarily specific to sociology, though it's definitely something mm-hmm. sociology has to work on, but as as Puapata's broader notion of human privilege, human supremacy, that, yeah, animals are often neglected in sociolog- sociological research, and when they are touched on, it's about their benefit to humans, the, mm-hmm. the dominant or, or privileged group in terms of that dichotomy between the two. Um, and, yeah, there's a lot of great talks. Are, are there any you specifically want to highlight? Um I really like Catherine's work. Yeah. So, so Catherine looked at human horse relationships and um, I've seen her present on these before. And what I really like about her paper at this conference is that she was setting up that kind of critiquing of scientific frameworks and sociological frameworks that actually shape the way that we create knowledge and the way that we create knowledge around animals is often in a way that means these relationships aren't challenged and they aren't problematized. And particularly in her field of looking at human horse relationships, I think this is something that comes out quite a lot. When you look at a lot of the horse literature, we talk about valuing animals, valuing animal agency, and it always falls short of critiquing horse riding or, you know, any sort of oppressive, oppressive kind of interactions that we have. So I really like her research. She looks at, you know, free roaming horses and the way that we construct our narratives around them, the way we construct our research around horses so that it seems like there's no other way to interact with horses other than to ride them. Mm. And and I think it's also interesting from the sociological point of view as well that um, Catherine mentioned in the sociological study, similar to our points before, but the subject is human mm-hmm. and it accepts this idea of partnership and respect through riding horses, but actually disregards the power differentials embedded in training mm-hmm. and the, the fact that the human one is the one making the animal do something for the human's benefit. And I think this is something that, you know, sociologists would generally be more critical of, of these power differentials and would be highlighting. But again, it goes back to that neglect of the yeah human supremacy and, and human privilege in this issue which is yeah has you know, historically been neglected in sociology but is increasingly just started to be challenged in in sociological literature um and yeah also catherine also pointed out that and, and this is something that was a, a key theme in your work as well this idea of resistance and that was the theme for the conference or part of the theme for the conference that Animals do show all kinds of resistance, such as um, refusing to race is a sign that they don't want to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that they do show, animals do show resistance. We often say, like, we need to speak for animals because they can't speak, but they do speak or at least communicate in a number of different ways that they often don't want to do these things that we uh, force upon them. So, yeah, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit any more about resistance in the context of Catherine's talk or your own talk or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think resistance in animals is really interesting. And something that I've seen, not in this presentation, but a previous one, she's done is when she put up a picture of horse training and specifically horse whisperer training which seems like you have a trainer who speaks horse and has a very unproblematic way of training and she mirrored it with the panopticon which if you're familiar and i'm sure people are is the kind of prison where you've got the guard tower in the middle and all of the guards around the outside and it's about teaching someone to modify their own behavior because they think they're always being watched Mm. and i really like the way that she's done this because it brings up that idea of you know not necessarily force training we're not necessarily just looking at whipping horses and physically moving them but that kind of almost a psychological oppression a psychological control that we inflict on them so that eventually they control their own behavior and oppress themselves because they Mm. know that humans are in control and and that's what's important but I also really like the way she looks at tools and the tools that we use for horses, things like, you know, the tongue ties and, um, and bits and the things we use with horses. And this is something that comes up in Dinesh Vardavel's work as well, when he says that often, you know, oppression and resistance isn't already visible a lot of the time. But if we look at the tools of oppression, we can see very clearly that animals are resisting. So with the example of the fish hook, you know, we don't necessarily think about fish resistance. We don't really think about fish much at all, really, which is a big problem. But when you look at the fish hook, something that's so clearly designed to hook someone by the mouth and so they can't get away when they do try to get away, that very clearly tells you that when we're fishing, horse don't horses fish don't necessarily want to die fish are trying to live and that's kind of the point is that you've developed the kind of mechanism you've developed this tool to best them so that when that fish doesn't want to die you manage to beat them anyway 
Yeah, and I think in terms of this idea of consent, often, as you say, often it's more a matter of being like submitted into just giving up and doing the thing because of that power differential rather than actually wanting to do it naturally, I guess, into a lot of these uses. Absolutely, and she talks about that learned helplessness as yep. well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, she gives the examples like horses refusing to race as valid expressions of resistance against human use rather than problem behaviours that need retraining. Mm-hmm. And again, because we often view animals as just things or resources for for us to use for our own benefit there's never in any of the training books there's never to consider of well maybe this horse doesn't want to be ridden it's always like oh here's the problem behavior here's how you fix that which is basically us trying mm-hmm. to yeah get them into submission um and also pointing out and, and this is very similar to your work as well the idea that sociological sociological accounts of human animal relations need to look at negative impacts as well if it's going to be a sociology for animals and not just about animals i thought it was a really powerful point too absolutely yeah um any other points you want any other talks sorry you want to bring up um i really like melissa lang's work Mm -hmm. which is not quite as abolitionist she is working in the social work space and looking at how social workers do kind of subversive social work to do kind of social work for animals not just for humans in a very species exclusive space Mm. so the participants that she's working with have had to find ways working with women who you need to get out of abusive relationships or need to seek particular social services when they have a companion animal often this is a barrier because we just don't account for companion animals and we know that women tend to not leave domestic violence relationships if they have a companion animal and they can't find anywhere that they can get their pet out with them Mm. and i think this is kind of one of these examples of when we look at companion animals and we need to look at them critically and think about how we can better accommodate them which isn't necessarily part of that abolitionist rhetoric Mm -hmm. but i think this is a very important depiction of what it is like to include animals and why it's important to start thinking seriously about you know seeing them as valuable yeah and i think her work is really interesting and something that i'm really interested in something we covered on the show a lot is out of intersectionality and this commonality between different forms of oppression mm-hmm. um like you know violence against women and also what happens to companion animals in the situation so yeah i think it is really interesting from that point of view and also as you say it's kind of about raising the status of animals more generally in terms of we've got you know a woman who is a victim that situation needs assistance we've also got animals as well um but yeah there's interesting sort of yeah definitely parallels with your work in terms of trying to raise the status of animals but maybe a different in ter- at least the language used is quite different towards mm-hmm. companion animals so raising the concept of interspecies families which is people and animals who are considered a single unit of kinship rather than pet which evokes property and ownership so this is something we covered earlier on in the episode but again um joan denayer is like well the reason why we should use pet is because it does indicate that ownership i guess mm-hmm. so it, it is a tough one of trying to raise the status of animals in which case we might use different uh language to try and get more consideration for these animals in these circumstances but also problematizing this ownership of of animals as well so it is definitely mm. a tough one um but yeah any anything else from melissa's talk you wanted to add in uh i think that's about all i've got for melissa's talk i do love her research project <clears throat> yeah and i think it was like, again in terms of raising the status of animals talking about there being very limited um, like legal frameworks or policies or anything like that which are about helping animals but it's often mm-hmm. just a matter of individual social workers taking care of yeah in, in that in the context of that language of interspecies families like all members of the family um mm-hmm. yeah human and non-human um rather than just focus on human even though they're sort of inherently within a human-centric framework of like human services for example and so they're not necessarily paid to take care of animals in fact they're probably almost discouraged from it like it's mm-hmm. outside of their work but they're often sort of cheating around the system to help animals uh, often in their own time and in their own homes uh, in those situations as, as well as the, the women in, involved as well. Absolutely. And it does feel like that necessary first step to get to a point when we can more meaningfully account for these animals. And um, this is a little bit of an aside, but I just got back from the Animals and Us conference in Canada where they did a whole day on domestic violence and animals. Mm. And a lot of people presenting had put up kind of shelters where they were starting to accommodate for animals in this way. So this was, you know, the next step once we realized we need to value them, we need to find some sort of structure. How do we actually do that when we set up domestic violence shelters? And I think what was really interesting is that because we have this kind of building, we have, you know, work like Melissa's that shows that you need to do this and that people are doing it in a in a dodgy way, as she said. Um, then they could start thinking about, well, okay, if we're going to accommodate pets, how can we do that? And so some people set up really interesting things like instead of having, you know, a kennel that dogs can go into, they'd set up individual lounge rooms where people could live these multi-species families with their animals, Mm. which I think shows that there's kind of some interesting possibilities once we start valuing animals in that way. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, And yeah, I think it also... 
I guess viewing animals, and this is definitely part of Melissa's work, of viewing animals not just important because they're a member of that family or mm-hmm. they're useful or desirable or, you know, of value to the the humans involved, but also valuable in, in their own right as well. I think that's really important yeah. uh, discussion to have as well. So, yeah, we're probably just about running out of time, mm-hmm. but any final thoughts about, yeah, the conference, your own work, or also do you want to give any plugs for your own work, any articles or websites or Twitters or anything like that you'd like people to know more about your work? Um, okay, you can follow me on Twitter, which is mm. at Zoe underscore Sutton. Mm. Um, I do have a co-written article with Nick Taylor coming out soon, which is a systematic literature review on the way that we talk about animals in sociology, which is arguing for an emancipatory animal sociology. So talking about the way we frame our research with animals is really important. And um, and there's really no such thing as neutral research. You've either got politicized animal research or depoliticized where, where you're contributing to those kind of arguments that make these things seem normalized. So I'm really excited about that article. And um, I'm really excited for the sociology and animals group. So I think you should follow us on Twitter and see what we're doing in the next year because it's a really important space and it's a great group of scholars. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think the Tarza website is just tarza.org.au and mm-hmm. we'll put a link up to the Tarza and animals session as well. Um, I'll put also a link up to Zoe's talk so you can actually hear more from Zoe and yeah, any other talks we put up, I'll put in the show notes at freedomofspecies.org in the notes of this episode. Um, yeah, thanks so much for joining me today, Zoe. Thank you for having me. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. With over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different inclusive sports, meet Paralympians and watch the AFL Wheelchair Challenge. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Monday the 3rd of December from 10 till 3pm at Crown River Walk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. So you're listening to the last couple of minutes of Freedom of Species, bringing you animal advocacy on the airwaves on 3CR. I really enjoyed that discussion with Zoe Sutton and hopefully you got something out of it as well. I'll put a link up in the notes to Zoe's talk at freedomofspecies.org in the show notes. Uh, Zoe's talk also links to Zoe's research, so you can check that out more if you like. Um, you can find all the notes for stuff we referred to at freedomofspecies.org as well as all our old episodes via that website as well as on iTunes. Our show is 1 to 2 p.m every Sunday. You can also look up um, Tarza and animals and sort of find out about this research, whether you're an academic or not. Hopefully this research can be useful to animal activists as well. So follow Tarza animals. It's just at Tarza animals on Twitter and you can search Tarza sociology and animals thematic group on Facebook as well. So yeah, you can also contact us with Contact us with any feedback, info at freedomofspecies.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter at FOS Radio. Um, I'm going to get out of here now. Make sure you stay tuned for End Psychedelia. And we're going to finish up with the track by of uh, called Stillborn by Maroon. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.